but take your copy of God's word this morning. We will be continuing in Nehemiah in chapter 2. I'll be covering the first eight verses of chapter 2 this morning. And I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. And as I read, remember that these are the words of Yahweh. I'm going to back up one sentence into chapter 1 and read from there. And Nehemiah says, Now I was the cupbearer of the king. Now it happened in the, night, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it is good for the king and if your servant is good before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it was good to the king to send me. And I gave him a set time. And I said to the king, If it is good to the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the house of God, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Please be seated, and let's pray. O Lord God, we come now to our time of the preached word. Lord, it is your word that does not return void. And if your spirit does not move, nothing will happen. No words that I preach, nothing that I say will accomplish anything without your Holy Spirit working. And we know that your Holy Spirit does work. And so we trust that you will take this text and you will apply it to us, Lord. That you will give us understanding. That you will convict our hearts where we need conviction, Lord. And that you will change us. Father, I pray that as I, as I speak, that there would not be eloquence or wisdom of man, but that I would speak your words, and that I would speak them faithfully, knowing that you accomplish your pur- purposes. Father, keep, me, keep my lips from error, and I pray, Lord, that, that you would be glorified as your word is preached this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Church, I want you to consider for a moment how you first came to Christ the King. Some of you were early adopters who committed to the plant when you first heard about it. Some of you moved thousands of miles across the country when you heard about the things that were happening here to become a part of this body. Some of you were even thinking about leaving this area and and maybe had almost just about left. But then you came to Christ the King and this is what has kept you here from moving. Some of you were completely uninterested when you first heard about the plant, and yet, here you are. When my family and I first moved to Knoxville in 2020, there were two things I was confident I didn't want in a church. I was certain I did not want to be a part of a church plant, and I was pretty sure that my days at eldering were over. The Lord not only writes the best stories, he also has a sense of humor. So when I heard the announcement about the church plant on our very first Sunday when we were in the Basswood building after moving, I thought, that's great, they're planning. But I was not interested. 
I became even less interested when I learned that Basswood was building a facility very, very close to our home. In fact, I think we would have been, had the shortest commute and, and many Sundays would have been able to walk to church. Even after our first dinner with the Jones family and the immediate connection that we had with them, still I was unwavering that we would be staying at Basswood. But then April asked me a question. She said, do you think maybe there are factors that you're not considering in this decision? Praise God for a good wife who was able to respectfully show me that indeed there were factors that I was not considering. And so we prayed much. We discussed with one another. We discussed with people whose counsel that we trusted. And ultimately, the Lord led us here to Christ the King. And we're so thankful that he did. Whatever your story is, there, there may be some differences and some similarities to my story, but whatever your story is, it is likely that there are at least two things that we all share in common. Prayer and diligence. We will see today in our text how God uses Nehemiah's prayerfulness and diligence to accomplish his purposes. And so that is our main point this morning. Here's the answer up front. God regularly uses the fervent and dependent prayerfulness and diligent faithfulness of his people to accomplish his purposes. Beginning in verse 2, it's, it begins by saying that now it happened in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is now March, and April, March or April, roughly, of the same year that chapter 1 started in. So chapter 1 refers to the month of Chislev or Kislev, which is around November, December, and we're now four months later. So Nehemiah has been, in an, has been in an extensive time of weeping and mourning and fasting and, and prayer to the Lord. He's been confessing the sins of Israel, confessing his part in the sins against Yahweh, their failure to keep his commandments. He's been meditating upon the character of God, and he's been beseeching God to grant them favor and grant them success. And now he comes to this point. I, I read that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king at the end of verse 11. And it says that the wine was before him, was before Artaxerxes the king. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Chris talked a little bit last week about the job of a cupbearer. This was a, a very important role. The, the cupbearer was the one who would guard the cup of the king. Kings were regularly poisoned in this time, and there were attempts at, at taking their lives. And so the cupbearer would protect the cup of the king, and he would serve the wine at the royal table. And there was a very formal way that the, that the cupbearer would do this. Essentially, he would take the cup, he would wash the cup in the king's presence, and then he wouldn't drink from the cup, but he would take the cup and pour, pour a little bit into his left hand and then drink it from his hand in front of the king to show him that it was safe for the king to, to drink the wine. And so this is the role that Nehemiah now um, performs in, in front of the king in his presence. So there were some characteristics of, of a cupbearer. We, we might just gloss over that, but it was a really important role. This is a person who had to be trustworthy. Um, it, it was a high-ranking position. Um, the, the king had to have absolute confidence in the cupbearer because the cupbearer essentially held the king's life in his hands. So the cupbearer was obviously valued by the king, and we'll see this a little bit more a little bit later on in this text. I think that when we see that uh, the king asks him, how long will you be gone? It was no small thing to be without someone you trusted so much, someone who was the cupbearer. Uh, and there's, this was also a position of influence. The cupbearer had quite, quite a bit of influence on the king, and we see that now, there's another cupbearer in Scripture with whom you'll be familiar. In Genesis chapters 39 through 41, we know that Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he went into prison. And then the baker and the cupbearer are brought into prison with him, and they both have these dreams. And Joseph is able to interpret their dreams accurately. The baker is executed, but the cupbearer is restored. And he says to the cupbearer, only remember me when it goes well with you, and please show me loving kindness by remembering me to Pharaoh and getting me out of this house. 
So he knows that, that this cupbearer is going to have Pharaoh's ear. He's going to be able to, to influence him to potentially get Joseph out. And of course, the cupbearer forgets completely. But two years later, when Pharaoh has a dream, he remembers Joseph. And, and, and because of his influence, Joseph is brought in, interprets the, green, the dream correctly, and is restored. So this was a position of influence that Nehemiah had. And he tells us, now I had not been sad in his presence. Nehemiah had never, ever, not once, been sad in the king's presence. He was diligent in his work, even to the extent that he was aware of his own demeanor while he was doing this work. He didn't just perform the tasks he knew were required of him. He didn't just... Um, get excellent at how to pour the wine and how to wash the cup and all of those things. But he actually cared to a very detailed level about doing this with excellence. And church, I wonder about how do you pursue excellence? Do you pursue excellence and diligence in the ways that you spend most of your days? And I'm thinking here of work and of being in the home. So if you do you show up on time so consistently to your work that if you were a minute late, someone would recognize that and make a comment about it? Are you someone who, who complains so infrequently that if you complained, some, they would be shocked about it? That, that you're someone who never complains and you never show up late? Or, or are you known for your pattern of tardiness and complaining? Would it just be another day for you if you showed up late? If something unexpected happened during the day and you immediately went to complaining and grumbling, maybe even gossiping about those who are authorities over you. Mothers, would your children see it as unusual for you to raise your voice at them in anger? Would that shock them? Would that be something surprising to them? Or on the flip side, would it surprise them if they knew that they should be spanked and you didn't spank them? Would that be something that they said, Oh, I'm shocked. Mom always, when I need to be spanked, mom always spanks me. Or are you a mother who is known for shouting often and spanking very little? Do we do these things with diligence? Do we go throughout our days with diligence? We talk much here about all of Christ for all of life. And that means pushing our obedience into the corners and obeying in everything we do, including how we do the small details, not just the big things that happen throughout the day, but submitting every little detail of our lives to him. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing here, that he is doing this job as a cupbearer with excellence. So he hadn't been sad in his presence, but that changes now. Verse 2 says, So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. The change in Nehemiah's demeanor was so unusual that the king immediately noticed it. And he even recognized that the sadness was something more than just a sickness. He could see that this was a, a grieving that was coming from within Nehemiah. It was, it was a sadness of the heart, is how he says it. There's some question of whether Nehemiah intended to show this sadness. Was it something, was he just overwhelmed with sadness and grief? He's been mourning and fasting and praying. And does that now just come out publicly? Or is there an intent behind him demonstrating his sadness? And it really could be one or the other. I think it's more likely that Nehemiah is trying to show his sadness. And there's a couple things in the text that make me think that. First of all, as I said, Nehemiah is a diligent man. He doesn't, we'll see, we see, have seen already that he cares about how he carries himself in front of the king. And we'll see more later that he pays attention to detail. He isn't someone who does something accidentally. So that's one reason I think probably he was doing this intentionally. But I remember if you look back up at verse 11, he had said in his prayer as he ended it, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear your name. And here's what he says. And make your slave successful today and grant him compassion before this man. So it sounds like he was planning on doing something today. So I do think that he was intentionally making himself 
appear sad in the presence of the king. The text continues on. Then I was very much afraid. So even if he had done this intentionally, whatever his uh, whatever the reason was for him appearing sad in the presence of the king, he has now done that. And his response is to be very much afraid, and he has good reason to be afraid. Um, first of all, it was not acceptable to be sad, to be mournful in the presence of the king. In, in Esther, when Mordecai was mourning, he went up to the, the king's gate, but he would go no further because, because it was not permissible to enter the king's presence in a state of sadness, in a state of mourning. So this was dangerous for Nehemiah to do. But beyond that, I'll remind you that this king, Artaxerxes, if you look back at chapter 4, he's the one who told them they had to stop building. He is the one who Rehum and the commander and Shimshai the scribe warned about the rebuilding of what he called that rebellious city, Jerusalem. They told him that if it was rebuilt then he would have no portion in the province beyond the river. And that's why he caused it to cease. And he agreed with what they said. He issued a decree, King Artaxerxes, and he said, Rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in Jerusalem. And he ordered that the rebuilding of the city should be stopped by force. So it's understandable that even though Nehemiah had asked to have an opportunity to go before the king, he is now... Afraid because his life is at risk. It's, it's likely that we have all faced similar scenarios to this. Maybe our lives weren't at risk. Most of the time, probably they weren't. But we've had things happen where we wanted opportunity to do something for the Lord, and then the opportunity arises, and what happens? We become very afraid. Maybe you're sitting at a dinner table with family, extended family over the holidays, and you have a family member who starts talking about the wonderful word that his female pastor preached this past Sunday and talking about the many points that were made in this sermon. Or maybe it's a coworker who you like, who you are friends with, and now you hear that coworker in conversation blasphemy, blasphemously use the name of Christ and it's a coworker you've been praying for, and you want to be able to share the gospel with them, and now you have this opportunity. And what do you do? In those moments, we often have, probably all of us, the same response. It's a, a physical response that starts to rise up in us. Our heart rate starts to go a little faster. We can feel it. We can start to breathe a little faster. Our hands get a little shaky. We can't really hold them steady. We've got to hold on to something. Maybe we even start to sweat. And, and church, hear me, this is a moment when the slanderer attacks. He loves to attack in this moment when we have an opportunity to speak and, and lie to us. He says, do you, do you know? Do you know what they'll think of you if you say that? I mean, you know they won't listen anyway, right? They're not going to hear what you have to say. Do you know what it, what it might cost you? It might cost you your job. It might cost you friendship. Do you really want to say that? His goal is to get us to remain silent, to apathetically say nothing. And make no mistake, that will not be the end of it. If you don't speak, he is right there ready to accuse you once you've remained silent. Because he knows that you know those verses about denying Christ before men. And so he is ready to tell you, are you even a Christian? You, you prayed about that opportunity and you had it and you were silent. Do you really love Christ the way you speak about loving him? This is what Nehemiah was feeling. He was feeling this fear. Though he had asked for the opportunity, the fear now starts to rise up in him. But that makes his response a bit, uh, a bit surprising. I want you to hear what he says next. This is Nehemiah, very much afraid Nehemiah. In verse 3, he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates have been consumed with fire? His response doesn't seem fearful at all. He gives appropriate honor and deference to the king, and then he gives an honest 
direct answer. He doesn't say what maybe we have said frequently or too commonly. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not sad. I'm not. It's nothing. Forgive me, King. Just, I didn't mean it. Forget about it. No, in the midst of being afraid, Nehemiah gives a faithful and seemingly fearless response. How does this happen, church? This is something that David speaks of in Psalm 56. In verses 3 to 4, he says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose words I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? And so he begins, verse 3, with when I am afraid, and then how quickly he moves to I shall not be afraid. And how does that happen? He looks to Yahweh. He looks to God. He doesn't look to the man standing before him. He knows the one to whom he gives account. And even more to the point than this, Proverbs 29.25 says, Trembling before man brings a snare, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be set securely on high. So we look to Yahweh, we trust in Yahweh, we fear him. And this is what happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah spoke in verse 11 of the previous chapter of, of being a slave who delights to fear the name of Yahweh. And we now say that play out in his life, that he is one of the slaves who d- delights to fear him, not to fear the king standing before him. And it is the fear of God that drives out the fear of man. And we must remember in moments of temptation to look to him and trust in him rather than fearing the man before us who can do nothing to us outside of the Lord's providential and loving care. I want to talk a little bit about how to develop and increase your fear of the Lord and to kill in yourself a fear of man. And as Chris was preaching last week, I, he, he took my points from me, um, but part of that is because the ancient paths have not changed, church. So there is no magic bullet. There are no new ideas in how to do this. It's the same as what he said. It is time in the word of God. We need to see the Lord as he is. We need to understand his perfection, his holiness, his justice, wrath, love, patience, mercy, grace. We need to grow in, under, in our understanding of who Yahweh is, and we need to be reminded of what he has done, his mighty and powerful acts, his kept promises. We must be in the word on a regular basis to help us kill fear of man and grow our fear of the Lord. We also need prayer, as Chris talked about last week. We need to be bringing this before the Lord. If you are, ha- are experiencing fear of man, you need to be bringing that to him. You need to confess it to him and ask him to change you because he will. He will help you to kill that sin if you ask him. And then the third thing is time and fellowship with the saints. We are so strengthened. We are so blessed to have time together to be strengthened by one another every Sunday. And that is absolutely one of the things I'm talking about is gathering with the saints to be encouraged and be strengthened. But that's not all. I'm also talking about the gathering of the saints out together on the battlefields. If you are someone who fears man, go out with the other people who are fighting their fear of man by being at these sorts of events with people who you know will hate you. That's one of the best ways to fight the fear of man. And in fact, this is something that I personally experienced when we were attending Basswood and I met with Chris and confessed a fear of man to me, to him. And he told me, Oh, why don't you come out to us? Come out with us to uh, Planned Parenthood. It was Planned Parenthood at the time, and so I did go out with them. And the first time, I didn't say much. I just kind of observed. But the, I, I didn't want to just keep saying nothing. And so the second time, I did. I had a pretty long, extended um, discussion with a a young man who was there. You know, of course, taking his girlfriend just for birth control, which is what always the lie that they tell. But I talked to this man at length. And he ridiculed me, and it was such a good experience. Because the thing that that ridicule does, it, it did two things for me. It, re- it made me realize that I actually do believe it. And, and if you are crushed under a fear of man, I think you are failing to be able to see that you actually believe it because you're not putting it out there in front of someone, feeling the ridicule, and realizing that your faith is strengthened 
by that ridicule. So I realized, I, I really do believe it. And then the second thing is that the ridicule really just isn't that bad. The, as I said, this is how the slanderer attacks. He makes us think it's going to be way worse than it actually is. It's almost never as bad as the lie he tells us it will be. So Nehemiah is bold in his response. It says next in verse 4, Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it is good for the king, and if your servant is good before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. I'm going to come back and address the second half of verse 4 in just a moment, but I want to first look at how Nehemiah responds to the king. And there are basically two things that he does as he's speaking to the king. He honors the king. In verse 3, we saw that he says, let the king live forever. And now he says, if it is good for the king, and if your servant is good before you, he gives appropriate deference and appropriate honor. And then he gives a direct response. There's no um, dancing around the issue. He simply says, uh, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So those are the two things that I want to focus on here. The honoring of the king and the direct request of what's desired. And church, I think if we are better at one of those, it is the direct request. We feel very comfortable with that. But I want, I want us to consider how well we honor the king. Um, in fact, I want to encourage us to do this well, because I think speaking naturally can tend to come, uh, speaking boldly and directly can, can come naturally for many of us. But we are people who see currently the massive government overreach going on. We, we see the totalitarian tendencies. We see so many wicked decrees going on that it is a temptation for us to fail to honor the king. Um, in 1 Peter 2 that we finished about a year ago now, I guess, Peter says at the end of that section on being subject to authority, he says, fear God, honor the king. And so my question for you is, how well do you honor the king? We are commanded to do so. Our men have committed to a consistent presence on the, at the Anderson County Commission and the Clinton City Council meetings in the coming year. This is going to be an opportunity, church, for us to honor the king. And let me tell you what I mean by that. There, there likely will be topics that come up where you should comment. It won't be every topic, of course. But there will be times when you should speak. Men, if you, if you speak and you are given three minutes to speak, stop at three minutes. And if, if there's some opportunity for us to be all together in a room like with the school board and they ask us not to clap, and they ask us not to cheer, don't cheer. Be silent. Honor the king. This is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our self-control and demonstrate that we take the whole counsel of God seriously, not just the parts that make us comfortable. So let me encourage us. Honor the king. Let's make sure that the only accusations which can be leveled against us are those accusations which are filled with slander and thereby put to shame the accuser. And let's make sure that if we are to suffer, that it will only be for doing good and not for doing evil. So church, let's honor the king. There's something else in, in Nehemiah's response that I want to point out and make sure that you see. Nehemiah, bold Nehemiah, direct Nehemiah. Uh, this is actually a part, part that I, I say, I call the nuance and winsomeness of Nehemiah. Where do I see that here? Notice what's missing from his request. Do you see it? He never names the city Jerusalem. He doesn't say, yes, king, I would like to go to Jerusalem, that rebellious city, the one where you made the building cease, and now I want to rebuild its walls so we can... Defend it during future rebellions. <laughs> I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek with calling him nuanced and winsome. I think these are just new words for 
cowardice and fear of man that make us feel a little bit more comfortable with those sins. But he was shrewd and wise with the words that he used. It was Jesus our Lord who said, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And so I want to encourage us, church, towards shrewdness in the things that we say as well. And I want to give you an illustration of what this might look like. It's no secret that we desire and are striving for the end of government schools in in Anderson County. We have prayed it many, many times um, together, corporately, publicly, and we've prayed it privately, I'm sure, many of us. But would it be a good idea, in fact, I'm going to argue that it would not be a good idea to say abolish government schools in one of these council meetings, that that would not be the way to lead in that discussion. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful, and if that's the route you want to go, that's okay. Um, Aaron Wren, in his talk at County Before Country, talked about how some people can open carry in the public square, but most should not. So maybe you're that type of guy who's an open carry in the public square. But for the most part, I'm going to say, let's not lead with telling everyone to abolish government schools right out of the gates. I think we need to be careful in our camps. So we are people, many of us, probably most of us, who are abolitionists when it comes to abortion. We are abolitionists immediatists. So we're not looking for a gradual end or a gradual decreasing of abortion. We see that as dishonoring and disobedient to the Lord. So we don't want that in the area of abortion. Abortion is murder. But, but church, we need to be careful that we don't conflate principles with methods. So immediatism, and aboli- immediatism is a method. And Doug Wilson talks about this. This is from him. He talks about it in Rules for Reformers, about confusing principles with methods. So the principle is we want to get rid of government schools. But the method, if we bring in immediatism and say, the only thing that will do that is to, to get rid of it tomorrow, that's, a, that's confusing principles and methods. And this is, I think, a way to apply this text that we can be shrewd with a goal towards the end of government schools that is successful without leading with the part that's just going to make everyone furious. I want to return, return now to Nehemiah's what I think is actually the most important thing in this text. And that's the second half of verse 4. When the king asked Nehemiah, what would you request? Notice his response. His requ- what would you request? And Nehemiah knows where he needs to make his request. And it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He's in this intense moment. Like I said, his heart rate's probably up. He's fearing. And in that moment, his immediate instinct is to go to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't rehearse and try to think through, okay, how, how am I going to say this? What, what, do I, what do I need to say to get him to do it? You no, know, he immediately, his thoughts turn to Yahweh, the God of heaven. He knows that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh and that he will turn it wherever he pleases. We aren't told exactly what his prayer includes, what he says but it must have necessarily been brief. In all likelihood, he was repeating something similar to what he said in verse 11 of chapter 1. Maybe something as simple as, O oh Lord, grant your slave compassion before this man. It was brief. What we see is that Nehemiah has been in a season of fasting and prayer. And it has increased his awareness of how dependent he is upon the Lord. In his moment of need, the prayers he has been praying privately now overflow into his daily public life. This is something, this dependence upon the Lord in prayer. Uh, Adam Gossett actually referred to this a couple weeks ago at prayer. He said, may our dependence on you be manifested in our prayer lives. And that is what we see in, in Nehemiah. We see his dependence upon the Lord manifested in his prayer lives. We see it through his extended times of, of prayer, of private prayer uh, in chapter 1. And then we see that in a moment of need, his, his, what he goes to is a crying out to the Lord. He is dependent. And my question for you, church, is do you respond this way? In the heat of the moment, is your instinct to go to prayer, to cry out to the Lord for help? Or do you strategize? Do you seek to escape difficult situations 
in which the Lord has providentially placed you, or are you going to him in prayer? I want you to examine your own prayer life and what it says about your awareness about your dependence upon God. And I want to make sure you heard that. I'm not, it is not a question of whether you are dependent. It is a question of whether you know and are aware of your dependence. You are dependent upon the Lord. But does your prayer life demonstrate that you understand that? Church, let me ask you, how much time do you spend in daily prayer, private, alone, by yourself? Chris mentioned 15 minutes last week, and I do think that that's a good start. But I think most of us can go much longer than that. Martin Luther, when once asked about his plans for the following day, said, Work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Do we think like that, church? Do we realize that I have so much to do that I have to take it to the Lord in prayer before I do any of it? Do we see our dependence or do we just rush into doing things in our own strength? Times of regular daily prayer train us to recognize our dependence upon God. And they train us to go to him in those times of need. But, but more in, in addition to how much you pray... What does the things you pray about say about your dependence upon the Lord? Are your prayers mostly supplication, mostly asking God for things to make your life more convenient? And hear me, church, I'm not knocking prayers of supplication. Those are crucial. We must make those to the Lord. But if that's all your prayer life is, especially if it's only supplication in a time of desperation when things are really bad in your life, so, so think about what is it that you pray about? Do you spend time adoring the Lord for, for who he is and for the things that he has done? Do you confess your sins to him? Do you ask him to reveal your sins to you so that you can confess them to him? And do you thank him? Do you thank him for the wonderful things that he's done for you? What are your instincts in moments of difficulty? Father, when your child again commits that same sin that so irritates you right after you walk in the door from a hard day of work, do you go to the Lord in prayer in that moment? If an unbelieving friend asks you about how to deal with a difficult child, ladies, if a sister approaches you to address a sin she has recognized in you, do you go to the Lord, Lord, help me to receive this as you would have me receive it? quick prayer to him? Do you call out to him for help? We have also structured our church here because around our dependence upon the Lord. The reason we pray so much as a body is because we know that we are dependent on prayer, that it is not just you. Jeremy and Chris and I know how dependent we are on the Lord. In fact, I was thinking about this. I was one questioning, when do I do what Nehemiah did. When, when do I do that most frequently where I say, Lord, help me? And I'm going to give you, let you in on a little secret. It is most often when some of you come to me and are asking for counsel. My instinct in that moment is, Lord, I need your help. Whatever they're saying, Lord, give me help to provide them wisdom from your word to apply to this situation. I know I'm going to need your help. Please give it. That's when I do it the most frequently. We want our dependence upon God to be evident in how we are structured. So our Sunday mornings are structured with prayer in mind. Prayer is not a transition between songs, between one movement of worship and another. No, no, no. Prayer is a focus. There's a reason we pray as much as we do here on Sunday mornings. And then there's a reason we pray so much on Wednesday nights. We want to, to acknowledge our dependence upon the Lord, and then we want to train all of us, in seeing our dependence upon the Lord, we need him to act. And we see this pattern of dependence in Nehemiah. But church, we see this even more perfectly in Christ. In Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And I want to spend some time looking at our Savior and his life of prayer.
Nehemiah spoke of himself as one of the slaves who delight to fear the name of Yahweh. And Isaiah prophesied that Christ would truly delight in the fear of Yahweh. And we see this in his pattern of prayer. Christ spent extended time in private prayer. He, it says in Luke 5, we read this week in our, in our reading, that he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. Prior to appointing the 12 apostles, Christ went off to the mountains to pray, and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. After a long day of healing in Mark 1, the next morning, think about what you do when you've had a long night and you're tired and you go to bed late. It says, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. And as a reminder to you, the reason that Jesus was wa walked on water to catch up to the disciples who were in the boat. Remember, he had just healed the 5,000, and he sent them away on the boat. And what did he do? He went up on the mountain to pray. He also fasted as the start, at the start of his public ministry after his baptism. And this pattern of prayer continued to the end. We read about it this morning. In our, in our scripture reading, you see where he was at the time of his betrayal. He had gone off alone at Gethsemane to pray to his father. In agony, he prayed fervently, sweating drops of blood. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Nehemiah numbered himself among the transgressors in his prayer in chapter 1. Because he was. He was a transgressor. He had committed sins similar to those of his people. But not Christ. Christ would be numbered among the transgressors, though he was not a transgressor. Like Nehemiah, Christ would also stand before a man with authority, as we again read today. Or we will read, actually, next week. He'll stand before Pilate. But at that moment, he would not call out for deliverance from his father. He would remain silent. He would instead submit to the Father's will, pressing on towards the drinking of the cup. But as you know, there was a time when he cried out. Nehemiah prayed in a moment of need for deliverance. Jesus cried out in forsakenness because he was the deliverance. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, he had prayed to Abba, Father, in the garden. And after he offers up his spirit, he again prays to Abba, Father. But at this moment, he cries out to my God, my God, as he experiences his wrath. And understand, this was not, this was not merely a feeling of forsakenness. It was an objective, true forsakenness. Neither was it a fracturing of the Trinity as some people have described. It could never be that. But truly, the Father hid his face from Christ. He turned Christ over to his enemies and he burned in anger towards him as Christ was forsaken on the cross. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, says of this moment, this offering up of himself was so sweet a smelling sacrifice to God that although God expressed never so much anger against Christ as when he hung upon the cross, yet he was never so well pleased by him as then. Consider, saints, the prayer life of Christ is certainly an example for us. If the second person of the Godhead so regularly spent time in prayer, how much more do we need it? But it is actually the moment where he is not an example to us that is most crucial. His forsakenness as he atoned for the sins of his people is a forsakenness we will never know. Because he was forsaken so that we would never be left or forsaken. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and through whom we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. 
Nehemiah saw his dependence but needed a priest, church. You have a priest. Do you recognize your dependence? I want to offer a pastoral caution because in this text we see that Nehemiah's prayer is answered. He gets what he's been asking for. But it doesn't mean that that will happen for us. And I think that we know this right now, don't we, church? I recently told April that I think we, the two of us, are in a season of learning to receive a no answer when we really want a yes. Um, in God's providence, it even happened this morning. Um, Kaisa was sick, and April, of course, wanted to be here to hear my sermon, but could not. And we had prayed that, that we would get a yes, that Kaisa would get better, but we received a no. And I know that many of you have had similar situations. You've desired children but have been unable to conceive or you've conceived and miscarried. You've prayed for healing for long periods of time, decades even, and you still continue in sickness. You've prayed to the Lord that you'd be able to move to Anderson County or that your home build in Anderson County would be completed, but it hasn't happened. You've prayed for the salvation of a child, perhaps. And still, that child continues in unbelief. And maybe even in your, in your view, seems to be hardening even further. We, as Chris put it last week, we feel like we are responding to successive waves of trials. Church, I want you to remember that because of Christ, you are not forsaken. And, and we see... Uh, examples of this. I, I was looking at some of the lives of the martyrs, some of their deaths and what happened, and we see that they knew they were not forsaken. Again and again, if you look at the martyrs, if you look at Blandina and Polycarp and John Huss and any number of martyrs, you see in their lives that they knew they were not forsaken. But I want to take time to look at one specific martyr. Now, many of you are likely familiar with the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, um, Two of my sons bear their names. They were martyrs during the English Reformation, and you probably know Latimer's famous quote to Ridley to play the man of the candle that they would light that would never be put out. But there's a third man in that story who you may not be as familiar with, and that man is Thomas Cranmer. He was their contemporary, but unlike Ridley and Latimer, who never gave in to the pressure to renounce their reformational views, Cranmer did succumb ultimately signing his name to a paper that said this, I, Thomas Cranmer, late Bishop of Canterbury, do renounce all heresies and errors not in agreement with the Church of Rome. I acknowledge the Pope as the supreme head of the Church whom all must obey. I believe in the seven sacraments, purgatory, and the prayers to the saints. I am sorry that I ever thought otherwise and led others away from the Church of Rome. This confession was printed out and distributed throughout England. But in spite of this, Queen Mary decided to make an example of Cranmer and burn him anyway because he was such a prominent figure in the English Reformation. He was provided an opportunity at his execution to read his recantation, but he refused. Instead, he renounced his recantation, saying, I here renounce and refuse things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I knew in my heart and written for fear of death. And because my hand has offended, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be first burned. He then went on to call the Pope Christ's enemy and Antichrist and to deny the sacraments of Rome. He was brought to the place where Latimer and Ridley had been burned at the stake before him. And he knelt down, and what did he do? He prayed to the Lord briefly, and then he prepared for his own death. He was tied with irons to the, to the post, and the fire was set on him. When the wood was kindled and the fire began to burn near him, stretching out his right arm, which had committed such great offenses, he put his hand into the flame, which he held steadfast and unmovable, that all men might see his hand burn before his body was touched. 
His eyes were lifted up to heaven, using often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is a man who knows that he is not forsaken. Like Peter, Cranmer had denied his Savior in fear of man, as he just said. But having repented, he approached his death with boldness, knowing that he was not forsaken. Saints, we must remember that we are not forsaken. We are never forsaken. And we have to remember our Father. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that a good earthly father would never give his son a stone when he asks for a loaf or a snake when he asks for a fish. And that our heavenly father is so much better than good earthly fathers. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? He has not given you a snake, and he will not give you a snake. So what are we to do when we keep hearing no from the Lord? Church, it's really pretty simple. Persist in prayer. Ask, seek, knock. He will either give you what you ask for or he will give you something better. Those are the only two options when you pray to the Lord. So we continue in prayer to the Lord. In the final three verses, we get a picture of Nehemiah's diligence as well. In verse 6, It says, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? That reference to the queen sitting beside him, I think this is a reference to a change in scene that has happened. I don't think it's much more than that. It was not customary for queens to be present at banquets in these days. So I think now we're no longer at the banquet. We're now in uh, the, the presence of the king, perhaps in the king's court. And we, as I mentioned earlier on, we see that the king cares about how long Nehemiah is going to be gone. He does not want his cupbearer to be gone very long. So he asks, how long will you be gone? uh, Verse 6 continues. So it was good to the king to send me, and I gave him a set time. And I said to the king, if it is good to the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the house of God, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Having been granted an initial implied yes from the king, Nehemiah boldly presses forward with additional requests. Notice the details of the requests that Nehemiah makes. He gave a set time because he knew how long the journey and rebuilding would take. You see that in verse 6. In verse 7, he knew the kind of authorization he would need once he crossed the Euphrates. And in verse 8, he knew the types of materials he would need for the rebuilding of the walls and his own house. And he knew the person he needed to go to in order to obtain those materials. What we see here is that fasting and praying were not the only things Nehemiah had been doing in the past four months. He had also been considering and diligently planning. He had done exactly what our Lord described when he said, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or in Psalm 127, verse 1, which you're likely very familiar with. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And you might say, but Daniel, that text is about dependence upon the Lord. And amen, it is. You're right. It is most certainly about labor being vain without dependence upon Yahweh. But hear me, the building of the house also required labor and building. So it's labor dependent upon the Lord. What if the conversation had gone like this? The king asks, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah says, I'm not sure. 
Can I get back to you on that question next week after I talk to a few people? And then he comes back a week later. Uh, I, I think it will take about six months. And the king says, okay, but that's the longest I will accept because I need you as my cupbearer. And then he leaves on his journey, but he comes back one month later. Well, king, we're back. We couldn't get past that pesky sand ballot beyond the river. Could you help us with that? By now, the king would understandably be getting irritated. Yes, but this is the last thing I will help you with. I need you back as my cupbearer. Is there anything else you need? Nehemiah, we could probably use some building materials, but I'm not really sure what we need, and I'm not sure where we would get those materials anyway. King, at this point, would say, do you have any idea what you are doing? I'm thankful to be alive with such a clueless cupbearer. But it didn't go that way because Nehemiah was a diligent planner in addition to being prayerfully dependent on the Lord. And we've seen this play out at this church already. Church, how did we get this building? We prayed and we prayed. And also, the Stevens came into the Haddock Market and talked with the Haddocks. They soon thereafter became members at Christ the King. The Stevens at the time lived right across the street from Lakeview Baptist and noticed how empty the parking lot had been on Sundays and Wednesdays. Meanwhile, the deacons and elders had been looking at the old True Value building on Edgemore, but there were some specific things we knew we needed in a building, and ultimately, we decided that old True Value building wouldn't work for us. The Stevens mentioned Lakeview Baptist to Dustin. Dustin reached out to the number listed online, but there was no reply. But after some sleuth work by Becca, Dustin called the personal number of the Lakeview pastor a week or two later. And in God's providence, we contacted them within a few days following their vote to close the doors of Lakeview Baptist. They invited us to come see the building that same week. The elders and deacons resolved to make sure they knew before our meeting was over that we would be blessed by the building and that we very much wanted to have it. And then several of them came to our church the following Sunday, and soon thereafter they committed to give us the building. Do you see the diligence in how we obtain this building? The diligence of the saints of Christ the King to look for any possible option for a building. I, I honestly can't even remember how many different leads we looked into before we came to this place. You see the diligence of the deacons to persistently follow up on every single lead. And do you see the diligence of the deacons and elders to know when we needed to say no, that this building won't work, and when we definitely gave a wholehearted yes we have seen diligence in our past. And church, I want to encourage us on towards diligence in the future. And I want to point to a specific area where I think that the Lord may use our diligence. As I said earlier, we have prayed and prayed for the end of government schools in Anderson County. How are we going to get there? What's the plan? We started here. We're starting a classical Christian school, St. Boniface Academy. We've said regularly from the pulpit that we are committed to having no child at Christ the King in government schools. And yes, there are times that are where providential hindrance prevents that. But that is our desire, and we will unashamedly proclaim it from the pulpit. But what else do we need to do? Maybe bringing conviction to those who profess Christ and have their kids in government schools who are not in this church? Who do you know that you can talk to about that? What friends do you have here in Anderson County who have children in government schools? Maybe we should talk to pastors about increasing their boldness and the wickedness against this wickedness of public schools. Let me ask you, church, how much do you pay in property taxes? Do you know where that money goes? How could we end our support of government schools? How might addressing property taxes pay into that, play into that? What sort of influence could we have at school boards? What would it take to get a person on the school board to have that sort of influence? 
Here's the thing, church. Christ is putting his enemies under his feet, so we ought to expect victory. We ought to expect to see the removal of wicked books from the Clinton Public Library. We ought to expect to see the end of government schools here in Anderson County and the ultimate confession of Christ as Lord in the official documents of Anderson County. And it will require both our fervent and dependent prayers and our diligent faithfulness to see these things happen. And when when these things happen, then what? Nehemiah closes, And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. We look upon what has happened, and we give all glory to Christ the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are a dependent people. Father, often we are slow to see that. Often we do operate in our own strength, Lord. But I pray that that you would help us Help us to see our dependence and to verbalize it, Lord, that it would shape our lives so that we are calling out to you again and again. Lord, increase our diligence. Help us to think through the details of, of the plans that you might accomplish here, Lord. God, we know you work mightily. You work powerfully. And we thank you for the privilege of being vessels in your hands to accomplish your purposes. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us now that the preached word would accomplish its purposes. In Christ's name, amen.